being human. That is the series we found ourselves in here in the month of January. And I invite you to turn one more time to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Because this passage has been really the springboard, the launching point for each of our conversations in this Being Human series. You've probably got it memorized by now if you didn't have it memorized already. Let me read what it says. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. I mean, this has been one long sermon, hasn't it? In a lot of ways. We're going to build today from right where Pastor Ganshaw left us last week. And, and this is the truth. We are sourcing everything we're saying ultimately. In Genesis 1, 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Week one, out of this passage we saw that humanity was designed in the image of our creator. This gives astonishing worth and value to every human, every human, specifically in each purposeful gender, male and female. Week two, we saw that humanity's embodied selves are good indicators of what they were designed for, what they were meant to be, and that their sexuality was designed for a marriage relationship. Week three, last week, we saw That humanity's physical and communal design comes with the need to be present together, to be embodied, to prioritize connectivity as a means to communicate our faith in God and equip each person and each generation with the truth of who he is. So now we find ourselves in week four, where we're going to see another layer of truth out of this passage. Because something else, and I don't pretend we've exhausted this chapter, this passage, this truth, but something else we can discern, this passage is that humans are designed to see and know the infinitely glorious God and cultivate his creation for him. Humans are designed to see and know the infinitely glorious God, to cultivate his creation for him. We see this in the call of Adam and Eve here. They who were in God's image made after God's likeness, their purpose, their fulfillment is going to be wrapped up in who they were made after. We humans, whether you knew this or not, are designed to know God. But also... We are designed to cultivate his creation. Humans were given dominion, work to do in order to subdue and cultivate the world that he placed us into. 
This would include our artistry, our engineering, our craftsmanship, the way we would form and leverage tools and technology, the way we'd make steel, the way you might lay bricks, the way you would bake sourdough bread. All of these things are a part of a creative cultivation mandate. And it was all to be for God's glory. It was all to be for him. It's all about him. We say that a lot around here because it's true. We see this all in this origin story that humans have a well-designed purpose. Humans, we, you, and I have a well-designed purpose. And this purpose drives our fulfillment. It drives our fulfillment. I thought long and hard about how to help communicate this thought. And what I came up with, I think you'll agree, is probably the best illustration could possibly be done. It's high class. It has a lot of sophistication. Do you remember the song, Be Our Guest from Beauty and the Beast? Do you know this song? Where are my 80s and 90s kids, all right, and their parents? You guys have this song memorized already. Like, I, don't, I have to talk about it. You know what's going on here. Lumiere, a talking candlestick for the uninformed about Beauty and the Beast. Goodness, do I have to describe this? Uh, he... He sings this song. It starts off with, Ma chérie, mademoiselle. That's all the French I know, right? <laughs> Educational material right there. And, and he begins in this introductory song about how thrilled he and the enchanted castle are to entertain Belle for dinner. But halfway through the song, though, the scene changes. The mood becomes dark hues of blue and black, and in a tone of lament as salt shakers sprinkle what looks like snow over Lumiere and Cogsworth, Lumiere says dramatically, see if you can say this along with me, I invite you, life is so unnerving for the servant who's not serving, he's not whole without a soul to wait upon. Ah, those good old days when, you were use when we were useful, suddenly those good old days are gone. Ten years we've been Rusting, bonus points, needing so much more than dusting, needing exercise, a chance to use our skills. Most days we just lay around the castle. I'll stop. <laughs> Flabby, fat, and lazy. And, and then all of a sudden, the scene changes. And Lumiere recenters the song over the fact that Belle is there as a guest. And he says, You walked in. Oops, a daisy. It's a guest. Mrs. Cogsworth takes over at this point. No, oh, no, no, no. Mrs. Potts, right? That's the heaven's sake, I've got a spot moment. Okay, anyway. I've seen the movie a few times, okay? In this film, this high piece of art and literature, a candlestick understands that what he's designed for was what would give him purpose. That without someone to feed and host, they weren't going to be fulfilled. They weren't useful. They weren't happy. That is, until Belle was held hostage against her will and kept imprisonment, or as they would say it, a guest. Right? It's quite the happy film. So, here's our attention and why I'm bothering to sing a song to you that was sung by a candlestick. We share Lumiere's problem. 
like the enchanted castle, we too, instead of living out of our purpose, find ourselves unfulfilled. But it's not a magic enchantment that's at the root of our problem. It's sin. See, you and I, humans, and you feel this, you know this, we're stuck. Instead of seeing and knowing a glorious God, we find ourselves seeing and knowing a depreciating entertainment spectacle. Instead of being satisfied in God, we find ourselves looking for fulfillment in countless lesser things. And these days, our technology, our media, these seem to be the going idols, right? They're constantly serving up spectacle for our senses and desires more and more and better and funnier and sexier and scarier and on and on it goes. So technology as a spectacle really is going to be the scene in which we talk about our human condition today. Because instead of cultivating God's creation, we consume it as content. We consume its content. We become slaves to consumption, by and large. We feast and we watch and we scroll and we fixate. We're slaves to these cycles and algorithms and notifications and distractions of our technological age. And none of this is for God as it ought to be. It's for ourselves. It's for our pleasure. It's how so much of the life you and I inherit and live happens. Humans are stuck because of our sin. Divorced from the one we were designed for, designed to know. And in the meantime... Limitless media content has joined forces with stunningly sophisticated and beautiful technology to attract our unquenchable appetites. We are now more media and tech-saturated than ever before, and yet, despite its quantifiable usefulness to humanity, we are not better for it. We are not happier. We are more lonely. We are more depressed. We are more angry. We are less satisfied. And so my question for us today, with all of this setup, is this. Has being human turned into technical, technological captivity? Can we recover what we were meant to be, what you and I know in our souls we long for as humans? This morning, I want us to rediscover the better way that we always should have, could have known from the beginning. That being human, as God intends, is rooted in our created design and finds power in our recreation through the gospel. That's maybe the summary statement, big idea for the morning. Being human, as God intends, being fulfilled is our created design. It finds power in our recreation through the gospel. So, let's know how we were meant to be and how we can be that way once more. I've got three thoughts sprinkled throughout this morning with some application along the way. And the first is this. Humans are designed for satisfying delight, not depreciating distractions. Humans, you and me, we are designed for satisfying delight, not depreciating Distractions. The reason you reach for your phone, the reason we allow Netflix to tuck us into bed is because we were designed to look 
for satisfaction. But that's also the very same reason why we keep reaching for our phone and why we are bored looking for a new show. Because only God can satisfy the humanity he made after his likeness. Only God can satisfy you and I, who he made after his own likeness. Think of Psalm 107.9. He satisfies the longing soul. The hungry soul he feeds fills with good things. Psalm 16. In your presence, God, is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then wasn't it Jesus in John 6 who says, I, God, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, it's God's infinite, glorious nature and character and power and beauty. They are the reason for our longings and the source of our fulfillment. The reason you want something satisfying in life is because your God is something worth longing for. He made you after himself for himself. And he then is the only source that can satisfy. Made in his image and likeness, we were made for him. And we spend all of our lives looking for what we might think or call satisfaction, but really is just God himself. Sometimes we think that what we need here is a soulmate or a, a payday or attention or a sheet of mini chocolate chip cookie, cookies baked to just before they're not gooey inside anymore, but just after they become crispy on the outside. You know what I'm talking about? I'm the only one here who knows that sense. Wow. That's what we think we need. And in moments, call out to us saying, I will satisfy you. But like Augustine said in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. When we know that satisfaction in God himself, all the other depreciating distractions around us lose their allure. Even the toys and the achievements and the flings and the trending reels, definitely the shows and the notifications and the cat videos and the talking heads stirring up crisis bait. And don't these things grow old and wearying on their own anyway? Since you and I were designed to know God, our hearts, our minds, our souls are not able to be satisfied, satisfied in anyone other than God. Look at how a satisfied human thinks and acts as a case study here. Of the psalmist in Psalm 101, verse 1, he says, I will sing of the steadfast love of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Look at this. It's a full, robust engagement with 
who God is. The psalmist's heart is so moved by the love and the justice of God that he burst out in singing to him. He, he thinks and he meditates on all of God's right ways, and then he wants to live according to them, and he longs for God to be with him. This is what a satisfied human thinks and acts like. He doesn't want to look at anything worth less than God. The term in context here, worthless, it's good for nothing, right? It's not simply neutral in this setting. It represents actually a hindrance to experiencing the best life. Why? Because God is satisfying. Why would we substitute him for anything else, right? God is satisfying. I don't want anything worse, less than God. I will not set before my eyes anything that doesn't profit my soul since the God who does profit my soul is so valuable. We see this attitude elsewhere. Psalm 119, 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Instead, give me life in your ways. Give me life in your ways. I was designed for satisfying delight. That's where the life is. That's where the joy is. Not worthless things. Not depreciating distractions. Okay, because here's the thing. Here's the thing about depreciating distractions. All the other things in life, the lesser things than God himself. They're sneaky. They're sneaky. Put a depreciating distraction in front of your eyes and mind and fill your life with constant distraction and you will receive, you will receive dopamine hit after dopamine hit. You will it will in your mind, in your life, in your heart, fire off tiny synapses of meaning and fun. Fleeting though they will be, it will shape me and you. It will reshape our appetites away from God. See, our hearts are adaptable. Our hearts form themselves to the objects of our joy. Our hearts form themselves to the objects of our longing. The theologian said it this way, a steady diet of triviality shrinks the soul. Silly becomes funny. Funny becomes pleasing. Pleasing becomes soul satisfaction. And in the end, the soul that is made for God has shrunk to fit snugly around triteness. Said another way in Proverbs chapter 4, keep your heart with all vigilance because from it flow the springs of life. See, you and I mesmerized by the trite, glittering spectacles of the world. Our hearts will not grow to their capacity of delight in Christ. Our life will become a shrunken, distracted, frenetic pursuit of shrunken, distracted, frenetic things. We will be constantly having a choice in life. Everything that's trying to capture our eyes versus, versus what most feeds our soul in God alone. I thought of it like this. 
It's like our fulfillment, our satisfaction is a balloon. You've ever inflated a balloon before? It's the worst. You get lightheaded and then your fingers hurt, right? Like, awful. But our satisfaction in life is like a balloon that's going to expand limitlessly to whatever the size of the object where we're feeling it, right? I try to track one down. I didn't have time to get a hold of one. I don't know. I forget what they're called. What are they called, Rebecca? That. You know, those expandable and retractable uh, children's toys, they're the spheres and they're geometric and they can get big and then they can get small. You know what I'm talking about, right? I'm not making this up. Like, this thing's real, okay? <laughs> it's high-tech plastic kids' toys, okay? It, if you open that thing up and then you put your balloon inside and because you have additional hands are able to somehow inflate your balloon inside of this sphere and then it's perfectly formed to this depreciating thing and then you shrink it down more over time because that object loses its value and its worth and its fun, what happens to your satisfaction? That balloon, it shrinks down with it, doesn't it, over time. Now imagine, though, as big as you can make this thing, you put your balloon in there and you fill it up in God. But what you realize as you fill yourself up with delight in God is it keeps expanding. You can't know him enough and you can't know him more and it gets bigger and bigger. And before you realize it, it's not a child's toy that you're expanding to. It's like the universe. It's vast and it's growing, right? And so all of a sudden, your satisfaction grows to the magnitude of the object where your heart delights in. Fix your eyes on Christ and his glory satisfies your heart and enlarges its desire for more of him, making us more and more human and more and more whole because humans are designed for satisfying delight in God, not depreciating distractions or idols. So on the practical side, if we're placing all this in the context of our technological world, maybe we should ask, am I entitled to scroll and binge and pass hours every week browsing trivial bits of info or video or content? And I would say our design that we're seeing in Genesis 1 and Scripture itself, as it tells us how to walk in God's ways, would say, no, no. These spectacles push God away and make him feel more distant and irrelevant in our lives. And we were designed for satisfaction in something much greater than any of these spectacles in our life. Further, believer, you are not your own. You are owned by the Lord. You've been bought with a price, which means we must glorify God with our life and our interest and our time. I'll just put the ball in your court. Do you want to walk with God in a full and intimate and loving and exhilarating way? Do you want to know meaning and purpose and joy and satisfaction in life? Then fill your eyes Fill your mind with him. Him above all things. Him more than all things. Him and him alone in all things. Believers, we don't have time to kill. We've got time to redeem. And we've got a life to experience in him. 
Let's resist the allure of worthless spectacles of depreciating distractions in life. Okay, let me recenter us here. We're asking this question, how can we recover what we were meant to be, what we were designed to be? We read it in Genesis 1 as humans, especially in this digital world we find ourselves enchantedly captive to. The start of our solution is understanding, reclaiming that we're designed for satisfying delight. But next, notice that in our design, in, in Genesis 1.28, it says this, God blessed them, blessed humans, and said to them, this is a blessing, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. I'm going to focus on one half of this. In this passage, we see you and I, humans, we are given work to do, a cultivation of the world that we have been placed into. We are called to dominion and ordering the world in a way that results in flourishing and glorifies God. And we need to remember this. We're not designed for endless leisure or for isolated doom scrolling. Humans are designed for cultivating mission, not personalized consumption. We have a choice with our lives and our time and energy to either consume or to cultivate. We might say that consuming is essentially this, a passive reception of entertainment and spectacle, spending your life binging shows, lost in video games, keeping up with social media worlds, and so on. This demands little of us, but it does shape us. Cultivating, on the other hand, is the intentional development of something. As cultivators, we engage in something that makes a demand of us. It can be reading and study. It could be cultivating a skill or a hobby or pulling your weight at work or coordinating a team of people. It might be composing a piece of music or painting a portrait or investing in a child or investing in a friend. These activities require mental and physical, emotional exertion as we make something of the world that we've been given. In turn, that develops us. Our responsibilities are kept and we leave behind something for others to enjoy and benefit from. And humans... Genesis 1 are designed for a cultivating mission, not personalized consumption. But there's something here I want us to notice because in the very act of this work we're given to do, this cultivation, that's where we end up as humans creating technologies. The very technologies that I've been admitting have been an enchanting and captivating idol for us. It's in work that we create tools and technologies for good. So up to this point, you might have felt like what I've been saying essentially is that technology is bad. Your phone and your shows are bad. Bad, bad, bad. You guys are bad. <laughs> Maybe that's what it's felt like. Sometimes as I was working through the sermon, that's what I was feeling like staring at a monitor here and a screen there and my phone there and I'm using an iPad here and it's like, well, um, it's like preaching on embodiment through a screen, you know? Okay, okay. Say that in jest. Ironies here, guys, ironies. But in seeing humanity's good work of cultivation, 
we can state positively that technology is a good byproduct of image-bearing humans doing work that they were, in fact, designed to do. Tech, technology from the wheel to the smartphone is generally a good byproduct that can be used for the flourishing of the world. But technology is not, though it's good, neutral in its impact and effect on us. What we do with technology can be for good or for bad, and perhaps even more sinisterly, using technology shapes us in ways that can be for better or for worse, and in ways that we don't always see or understand are happening. Philosophers of technology, they exist, like to say this, that technology is ecological, not additive. Technology is ecological, not additive. It acts, basically, they're saying, like a living thing, not an additional thing in whatever space it's put into. Think about this. Add, in an additive relationship, a shark into a fish tank. It's not an additive environment. It's an ecological environment. The shark will change the fish tank. In this example, RIP to the fish, right? This is what happens. It's an ecological environment. Add something to it, and it's not merely additive. It's ecological. Stuff's going to change. A simple example, the invention of the television didn't just add TV sets alongside radios and the family home, did it? It changed our culture's evening routines, our sense of ourselves, our entertainment philosophy. It has shaped humanity, the invention of the television. We don't just add tech to our lives. Tech changes our lives, changes the way we do things, how we operate, how our culture values things, how we think about ourselves. Remember how your math teacher forced you to do math tests without a calculator because, I quote, you won't be carrying around a calculator in your pocket in real life. <laughs> what are you going to say about this, Mr. Seiler and Mr. Johnson and Miss Lyons? Right? I cried over your test, okay? I have a calculator now. It was not necessary. It's okay. I'm not bitter. All right? <laughs> Calculators are an incredible technological tool. They enhance our abilities to do advanced calculations and computation. They reduce the time it takes us to do innumerable tasks, especially in math-driven professions. However, they also reverse our mental ability to, you know, memorize facts and figures and think logically for ourselves, and we're all dumber for having them, right? It's just kind of a reality of the way a simple technology changes the world. See, technology is a good byproduct of our cultivation, but it's not neutral in the way it shapes how we behave. So we need to be wise stewards of technology. And in every generation, as new technologies are added, wheels or electricity or cars 
or smart devices, we need to think carefully about how we steward them and how they affect us. This is especially true for those of us with children because children are the most at risk because they are comparatively incapable of moderating and discerning the effect that these technologies are going to have on them. So I'd like to suggest a few guidelines that might help us setting up good boundaries in order to be engaged in cultivating instead of mere consumption. Most of these are pulled from Andy Crouch's great book, The TechWise Family, which I commend to you. It's available. You can scan it and have it shipped to your house. Out in the um, commons there on the welcome desk, definitely give it a read. His example proves to us that we can live a different way than our culture probably tells us we have to surrender to. And some of these are his guidelines for how to use tech for cultivation. I won't give a lot of illustration on this. Let me just read them off for us. First, technology is in its proper place when it helps us bond with the people we've been given to love. It's out of its proper place when it steers us towards bonding with people who don't love us in return. Those podcasters, those show hosts, those influencers, even those online or distant Bible teachers that are not a part of our personal embodied discipleship. We shouldn't be bonding and valuing and loving those people more than the people we've been entrusted with and to. Second, technology is in its proper place when it starts great conversations. It's out of its proper place when it prevents us from talking or, from talking or listening to one another. Third, technology is in its proper place when it helps us take care of the bodies we inhabit. It's out of its proper place when it promises an escape from the natural limitations of those bodies all together. Then technology is in its proper place when it helps us acquire skill. It's out of its proper place when it trends towards passive consumption. The opportunity online to do so many things, learn so many things, music or skill sets or accounting or the list could go on and on. Like, there's opportunities to learn and develop ourselves. That's a better use of technology than just viewing something. Fifth. Technology is in its proper place when it helps us be in awe of the world that God has created, that we're a part of, what we're responsible for. It's out of its proper place when it keeps us from engaging in the natural world. Isn't it one thing to realize the, the parks and destinations we ought to go to and hike and explore and praise God for, or even watching an incredible documentary about the way God's made the world, versus... I'm just watching mindless content for hours at a time. Or I haven't been outside in 18 years because it's January and it's Indiana and I have a phone, right? Six, technology is in its proper place when it helps us treasure God and his word. It's out of its proper place when it distracts us from meditating on him. All right, that's a lot. Perhaps the message that we need to hear ultimately is this. Technology is only in its proper place when we actively use it with intention and with care. 
We have to choose. We have to establish boundaries. We have to get accountable. Otherwise, our phone and our streaming services and our social media will all too easily take over. The shark will take over the fish tank if we don't guard against it. Over the years of my life, as I've seen tech introduced and then adopted into my life, and even this week as I've prepared for this sermon, I've had to grow myself in a lot of areas here, mostly because of an abuse of technology's role in my life. I'm far too easily amused and sucked into watching great shows and compelling stories. I'm far too easily amused by seeing something else fun on the world of the internet. I've had to share concern about the time and influence my phone and shows have had in my life with the brothers who keep me accountable. And they've got specific questions they have to ask. I've had to make the choice to enable screen downtime settings on my phone. That's Your phone's got these two. You can find them. I've got a nine-hour window right now in my phone where if I pick it up, none of the apps work except for messaging and phone calls so that I protect my evenings with my family as much as possible and the mornings before the kids get dropped off. I'm not distracted to do what I ordinarily would have done otherwise, which is, well, what's on my phone? And, and it's amazing how when that's not an option, when I've decided in the light, as it were, ahead of time, how I ought to use my time and my energy and my attention, that when I go to pick it up and I'm like, well, this thing's useless. What good is this without all the apps? And like, okay, well, that's telling to my soul that I feel like my phone's useless without all the distraction on it. It's probably good that I can't use it right now for anything that I want to use it for. What do I do instead? Huh. Well, and then the silence starts like bearing down on you. And you realize like, oh man, I haven't prayed in how long? Or my wife's sitting right next to me on the couch. When did I talk to her last? Or like the kids are wrestling on the floor. Like oh, my Bible is available to be reading. Or there's this other book on the nightstand like, what else should I be? How else could I be finding delight in the one who made me? Because humans are designed for cultivating mission, not consumption. We're designed for satisfying delight, not distraction. But in this world, in this culture where technology is so pervasive, so compelling, do we have a chance at being those fulfilled humans? Only where God restores. Only where God frees us from our slavery to broken cisterns and dry wells. Only where God's all-satisfying love is the thing that controls us. And so, praise God that for the believer, the love of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, controls us. Because we've concluded this, that the one, Jesus, has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might not longer, might no longer live for themselves, consumption, but for him who is for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Believer, in Christ, having trusted in the life and death of Jesus alone for forgiveness of your sin and believing in him, his resurrection, his life alone for your salvation, you have new life. 
You have renewed humanity. It's no longer your destiny to be controlled by lesser satisfactions. You no longer have to live for yourself. No, his love controls you to be able to live for him, the one you were made to live for. This is the third and maybe most important reality. Jesus offers renewed humanity the freedom to see and know real satisfaction in an infinitely glorious God. Because church, I don't want us to think about being human as merely being detoxed from screen time or cutting TV and YouTube pundits from our life or going off into the wilderness in some sort of commune without any modern technology. That's not the essence of humanity. I want you to know a greater vision that being human can be deeply satisfying and wonderfully fulfilling and delightfully fun. It can look like diligent work and fascinating discovery and technical brilliance when through Jesus we are living in worship of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and God Almighty to whom be the glory praise both now and forever. Amen. He is so satisfying. He is so worthy. He is so good that anyone who begins to see him is motivated to never watch or never use or never need anything that's worthless. Not because the tools that we as humans come up with are inherently bad, but because we have so much better to do, so much better to see, so much better to experience in God. Because we want to love God with reverence and delight. We want to dare with the gifted purpose he's given us. We want to grow in embodied, together, shared dependence with one another. Because being human is very good, God said. And it's intentionally designed as an opportunity. That in Jesus today, we can be recreated to know and enjoy our incredible maker our redeeming God. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, Paul says, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How we need to behold him. How we need to be satisfied in him. How we need him. That's being human. Let's praise God and ask him to be our all. Give us a hunger and a desire to need and know him.